Hello and welcome to episode one of Coping with Creativity, a podcast for creators about coping with that unrelenting need to create, our mental health, self-imposed pressures, actually succeeding, and everything in between. My name is Jesse Lawson, and in this episode, we're going to focus on hating our creations. With that in mind, let's kick off our first segment, Notes for Notable Questions. Rachel from Maple Grove, Minnesota writes, Dear Jesse, when you said you were going to make a podcast for creative people struggling with self-doubt, I instantly knew what I wanted to ask you. Every time I get in the groove of writing, I will eventually stop and scroll back to the beginning of what I started, read the first few lines, and instantly hate myself. The fleeting excitement I had enjoyed while typing away just moments before is quickly suffocated with the looming truth that my eyes are now bearing witness to. I am not a good writer. I love writing. I really do. But I hate the constant up and down of liking my ideas, but hating how I am executing them. What can I do? Well, thank you for that question, Rachel. I think this is something that we all deal with in some way. It doesn't matter if you're a writer, a painter, a sketch artist, a game designer, sculptor, you will 100% guaranteed look at everything you create and hate it at some point. And to add to the misery, if you're anything like me, you might even share something that you know you should be proud of with a significant other or a friend, knowing somewhat subconsciously that they're not going to hate it, but then assuming they're lying to you when they actually tell you they like it or that they're excited to see where it goes. And then to add misery to the misery already added, you, like me, probably possess the common sense necessary to see how utterly ridiculous it all is to have these latent thoughts. The truth is, everyone hates what they make, at some point at least. Uh, anyone who says they don't absolutely hate what they're making at some point is either A, lying to you, B, lying to themselves, or I guess C, a little bit of both. Now, I can't speak for other forms of art, but when it comes to writing specifically, I can offer some suggestions on how to deal with this specific problem, the specific problem being coping with hating the stuff that you just wrote. In my experience, you usually don't start hating something until you get to what I call the pull point. What I envision when I'm writing are specific points in my script or draft where the plot or characters are being pulled forward through the plot by their own actions. It's the moment I arrive at at this point where I have to start making hard, irreversible choices about my story and about my characters that the writing no longer becomes fun and it starts to feel like work. And once my writing starts to feel like work, my brain wants nothing to do with it. I think a lot of people are this way too, because a lot of us grew up fantasizing about becoming an author and writing for a living, and then anytime something like actually writing comes along and dispels the illusion that we've grown comfortable with, honestly, I I think we take steps to avoid it, and I think that's what's going on. So I'm not saying that, that Rachel, you specifically are subconsciously trying to hold on to some fantasy of what you think writing is. But I think all writers, when they're starting out, fall into this trap of thinking writing is always this beautiful, magical activity where creativity pours in like sunlight after a light summer rain and you're writing away like madness in the corner of your house. I mean, that does happen, but by and large, writing is one thing and one thing only. It is work. It is a lot of work. Writing is hard work. Writing is frustrating, challenging, it's depressing at times, it's exhausting, and ironically, we still feel a need to do it. I mean, if we didn't, I wouldn't have felt compelled to make this podcast, and you probably wouldn't have submitted that question, and who knows, maybe I would have never finished my books, and maybe we'd all be different people. But that's not the case. We feel compelled to create. And although we cannot stop that incessant drive for creativity, 
What we can control is our expectations. We can control our expectations of our writing and of ourselves. It's a fairly common saying that the first draft of anything is garbage. Well, that's easy to read, but it's not so easy to digest when you're working with a really exciting idea that has been brewing all morning and you finally sit down to write it and all the excitement and energy is going straight into your fingertips and then at the end, you read through it and poof, what you wrote is awful. But listen to me, this is normal. When you're just starting to chip away at a story, it's not whether the writing is good or bad at this point that matters, it's whether your premise is believable or not. At this phase of sculpting your story, you're only putting together a big fat block of soapstone. You're not carving it. No one is carving it. So of course your big block of rock is not going to look like a completed polished statue. When you look at it, it's not going to invoke the emotion that you're hoping it does once it's completed. Because again, it's not completed yet. It's just a block of rock. Even if you draw a great detail, like a great detailed drawing of what you want the statue to eventually look like, you can even draw on the rock itself, you're still not going to be able to see and feel the end result until you spend an enormous amount of time, all the time in the world necessary to chip away at that thing piece by piece and polish it like crazy. Writing is hard work because we can't begin sculpting until we have the words to start sculpting and we can't have the words to start sculpting until we actually write them. No one cares what the sculptor's soapstone looks like before the statue is chiseled out nor does anyone think about how much stone was trimmed or shaped up and from where. The only thing that matters is your vision of what your art is going to look like once it's done. Until it's done, you're still only adding rock and adding rock and adding rock, making sure to have a lump in the general shape of what you envision it to become eventually. Stepping back, we need to practice telling ourselves that when we start writing something, and even when we're engaged actively in writing something, it's actually a good thing that we don't like it. Not liking what we're writing means we can both accept that the writing needed to be done and, at the same time, that the writing needs to be rewritten eventually. This is a skill that non-creatives simply don't have and is a huge factor in differentiating between art, craft, and the art of crafting when it comes to storytelling. Someone who hates what they wrote is someone who has everything they need to write something good. The difference between someone who has written something good and someone who has written something bad is that the person who wrote something good reworked and reworked and reworked and chiseled away and shaped and polished that thing until it resembled, at least somewhat, what they originally envisioned it to be or what it, what it evolved into. So hopefully that answers your question, Rachel. If You shouldn't like what you wrote at the beginning. That is normal. Because the statue you're sculpting isn't supposed to look like a block of soapstone. It's supposed to look like a statue. And our first draft is just the words that make up that block of soapstone. Also, uh, one last thing I wanted to share with you, Rachel, as you go forward. Consider writing the old-fashioned way with pen and paper. I've found personally that physically writing words forces me to slow down, which may inhibit the quantity of words I'm outputting, but it does wonders for the quality of my writing. Also, I've noticed that I'm far less likely to skim or scroll back, as you mentioned you did, and review what I wrote. When I'm writing longhand, the process feels a lot more linear and a whole lot less like jumpy aroundy. I hope that makes sense. Give it a try for a couple days. Challenge yourself to write away from a computer and keyboard and, you know, see what happens. All right, 
It's now time for our next segment, Immediate Questions, where I read a script that you've submitted and give you all the immediate questions I have as a means of giving you a little bit of insight into what one audience member, me, may be thinking. Today's script is called Fiends, and it is by Logan Leo. We start off with a voiceover from a teacher. What do we say, kiddos? Up from black. VHS scan lines, video flicker, a cheesy musical jingle kicks in. Roll credits over a drug PSA. Overly peppy teacher offers a joint to a group of kids. The kids just say no. Kids chant in chorus. Hypnotic. Teacher. No to drugs. Yes to dare. Dare logo emblazons on screen. The teacher continued. Purchase the dare bear. Show you care. Kids hug a monstrously oversized stuffy bear. Very cringy. Cut to another drug PSA. A gruff man carrying an egg carton pulls one out. The man, this is your brain, cracks the egg, drops it on the stove, it sizzles. Man, your brain on drugs, any questions? Stares solemnly at us, eyes that cut straight into your soul. Cut to PSA of teen girls, Susie on hospital bed. Susie hooked up to IVs and breathing machine, parents sitting next to her. A sheriff stands to watch, turns to face camera. Sheriff, Susie's parents taught her well, but for all their love, one lesson left untaught. A beat. Susie's mom wipes an eye. Sheriff continued. Susie learned one final lesson on her own. He just stops, haunted, thinks of something else to say, finally looks away, silent to black. Titles on black. Fiends. Long beat. Over black, a sharp scraping noise, nails clawing on metal, and interior, sub-basement, murky corridor at night. Sound floats past, rust-flaked pipes that stretch a darkened corridor, close on a fingernail raking a grimy metal pipe. Pull back to reveal Abigail, 17, muddy blonde hair caked with sweat, deep in a trance. Abigail whispering, I'm ready. She peels off a chunk of a noxious black mold. It's speckled with green and white tendrils, places it under her nostril, beat of hesitation, then an intense inhale. Her nostrils quiver. Instantly, it hits, potent, whoa. Abigail's POV, she shudders as the world goes askew. The long corridor stretches forever in either direction. Suddenly, a movement taps close by. Abigail continued, hello? The silence is deafening. The stillness before the pouncing of a coiled snake. A clanking sound resonates all around. The whole basement shivers as if foundation has shifted. From above, a bulb flickers. The cavern lit with a sickly ambient light. And that's when we see it. Something on the far wall. A spot of pulsating darkness. Throbs. Breathing. Alive. Back to Abigail. Motes of black mold float to her from the dark abyss, approaching like a cloud of charcoal snowflakes. Her terrorized eyes clench open. A muted sound bellows deep within, aching to burst, choking on it, gurgling. Finally, her blood-curdling scream pierces the shadowy void. Dissolve to interior juvie intake day. Shrieking of a steel metal barred of a steel barred gate sliding open. Downtown youth correctional facility, a musty cinder block structure. Okay, so my immediate questions. Uh, number one. And these are in no particular order, although the first couple ones may be chronological. Uh, There were three PSAs about drugs. The D.A.R.E. program specifically, I believe, uh, which is known to have had a negative effect on curtailing youth drug use. Is the one, two, three punch of the PSA setting me up for some kind of violation of trust among some entity in the show and and a protagonist? Or is it purpose or is its purpose specifically to illustrate contrasting notions of anti-drug propaganda and the somewhat deleterious effects of the D.A.R.E. program. Is the D.A.R.E. program important here? Uh, or is it like just the anti-drug propaganda that's important? Is it, what, what is the message from the beginning and how does it contrast with the message at the end? 
is the contrast, uh, question number two, is the contrast between the PSAs and Abigail, who's described as being, quote, in a deep in a trance, meant to show a character who has ventured far from what was originally intended for them? Or is this character's immediate observable actions meant to be a setup of some kind of growth, quote, back to home, unquote, so to speak? Question three, when Abigail whispers to herself, I'm ready, is this to say that there was a point when she was not ready? Is this a regular occurrence for her, or am I going to find out later that she had been wanting to engage in whatever she is ready for for a long time and is only just now getting to do it? What does being ready now have to do with the PSAs from before, and are they related at all? After snorting, question number four, after snorting this black mold, Abigail seems to begin to rapidly and vociferously hallucinate. Are these hallucinations actually hallucinations, or has Abigail, upon engaging with the black mold, been greeted by some sentient being or something? Was Abigail aware this was going to happen? It doesn't seem so, but if not, how did she find this place and how does her readiness, see question number three, play into whether she did or did not know what was going, uh, what was down there or what was going to happen? Question five, is sentience supposed to be implied by the spot of pulsating darkness? Being described as a throbbing, breathing, alive, but from Abigail's point of view, are we meant to be as confused as Abigail here, who is obviously super out of her mind right now? Question six. Based on Abigail's reac- reaction, was she not expecting this black pulsating darkness to be there? It seems that this is the first time she has experienced this darkness. And if that is the case, is her blood curdling scream an indication that she was in fact not ready for this? Was she aware of this darkness? And if not, Is the darkness a projection of something inside her? Question seven. Is it Abigail who's in the juvenile detention facility at the end of the third page, or is it someone else? If it's Abigail, how on earth did she get out of there, and was it all in her head after all? Question eight. Why was Abigail snorting black mold from this place? Did someone show it to her? How did she know about it? And what were her motivations for doing it? Question number nine. Is Abigail dead, either literally or metaphorically? And question 10, the final question, if Abigail is still alive and she is a significant character or even the protagonist, what about her in the next part of the story is going to explain her projection or meeting of this dark pulsing spot from the murky corridor? So those are my immediate questions. Thanks again to Logan Leo for submitting that script. And that wraps up this episode. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and I hope you found it useful. A full transcript of the episode is available at copingwithcreativity.com, along with links to my Patreon page, where you can support this podcast and all of my work. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.